Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. One of my favorite decades in American history is the 1920s. It was a time marked by new and more affordable technology, massive economic growth, a renewed push for civil rights, and relative peace, its daily life beaten along to a new music genre called jazz. But one element of the Roaring Twenties that is lost on most of us these days is how it contrasted with the decade previous. To help us compare the 1910s to the 1920s is historian Dr. David F. Krugler, who has written and taught extensively on those early 20 years of the 20th century. I think a lot of folks know something about the 1920s because we call it the Jazz Age, of course, it was uh, high living and the economic boom, but not as much is talked about, I think, about the 1910s, other than World War One, possibly. So what was the first thing you would like folks to know about the 1910s before we compare it to the 20s? I think it's important to know that the 1910s marked the high point of progressivism, which picks up momentum in the 1890s and crests uh, in the 1910s. And a good example of this is the 1912 election, which features uh, four candidates vying for office. You have the incumbent, the Republican uh, William Taft, and you have his previous mentor of sorts and former President Teddy Roosevelt, who voluntarily uh, left the presidency in the term before Taft decided he missed it. <laughs> so remember, there's no prohibition on, on president's terms at this time. And so Roosevelt decides to run uh, and creates the progressive party to do this, running as a progressive Republican. On the Democratic side, you've got Woodrow Wilson, and finally, representing the socialists, you have Eugene Debs. And when you look at the issues these four candidates talk about, uh, it's really about the best way to harness the power and resources of the government to make lives better for uh, working Americans. Right. Uh, progressivism is present in all four uh, candidates. Uh, and so you have some really remarkable proposals in, in, in 1912. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, says that the American people through a referendum should be able to overrule Supreme Court decisions. Huh. This would represent pure progressivism. Um, if we define progressivism as putting power in the hands of the people. Uh, and if you look at a speech Taft gives in, in New Hampshire while he's campaigning, he's, he's horrified by this. Um, he's saying, look, we can, we can do things to make lives better for people, but let's not upend the Constitution uh, like this. Meanwhile, uh, the Democrat Woodrow Wilson is campaigning for his uh, uh, new uh, freedom, uh, saying, you know, without an end to monopoly capitalism. There can be no freedom. And, and Wilson famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, states that you know, the Constitution is essentially this living document. We have to update it for modern times. And, and, and modern industry has brought challenges that the founders could never envision. So we need to interpret the framework they gave us to make lives better. So this is all taking place uh, well before World War One, which we typically think of as uh, the defining event of the 1910s, and it is, but but before World War One comes along, before the U.S. enters it, progressivism uh, is, is is shaping lives and politics in profound ways. Well, let me ask you this: uh, even in the history book that I have to teach with at the college, uh, they always list Taft as the conservative of the bunch. But as I remember from my classes at Ashland, you know that was not the case at all. Uh, he was progressive on some things. He, maybe he was more conservative than the rest of them. But talk about Taft a little bit, how he wasn't a conservative. And of course, we know that th that word maybe wasn't used like we use it today, conservative. But maybe right. like constitutionalist, maybe, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, of these four candidates, 
Taft is the one that's most concerned about um, staying as closely as possible to the text of the Constitution um, and, and following it through. Um, but but that doesn't mean he's he's not attentive to the issues uh, of of the day in in foreign policy, for example. Uh, we see Taft uh, overseeing uh, continuing American efforts to uh, build an empire and to uh, establish commercial relationships with with nations in Central America and 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 also in in, in China. So this is. In the, the, the state of the empire that the U.S. has in the 1910s, it's it's new in many ways for the United States, and, and, and Taft is saying, "All right, how do we how do we deal with this? How do we how do we manage this?" You know, he's not saying uh, this is new for us, therefore it's wrong. Well, you know, Washington wouldn't have done this. He's not that type of, of, of conservative. When we hear the word progressivism, of course, we think about modern progressives. How are the, the progressives of the early? 20th century, and how are they similar and different to the progressives that we have today? I think a great similarity is that progressives um, 100 years ago or 120 years ago and and those of today uh, believe that the power of government should even must be used to provide a minimum level of well-being for the citizenry. Uh, This is a durable feature of progressivism. It's present in Wilson's actions as president, uh, because of course he is the candidate who wins the 1912 election and serves two terms. It's also present in Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, during his time as president and as a candidate in 1912. And we see it uh, in the presidency uh, of Franklin Roosevelt. The power of government uh, exists to provide a minimum level of well-being for its citizenry. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt famously said that as president, he must act as the steward of the people. Uh, A steward is someone who tends to your needs. Uh, And in that same quote, he said, I'm not going to leave the powers of the presidency wrapped up in a napkin. Uh, Roosevelt had a great uh, uh, flair uh, for evocative uh, phrasing. And if there's not something prohibiting me from acting, if it's not expressly stated in the Constitution, well, then I'm going to go ahead and do it because it's in the interest of the people. So think about his sponsorship of legislation to regulate the meat industry after the uh, explosive publication of uh, Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle in 1906. You know, Roosevelt sees nothing wrong with uh, proposing legislation and then getting Congress uh, to act upon it. Uh, why is he doing that? What's the base motive here as, as a progressive? Well, this is necessary to protect the health and the welfare of the American people. So we see that with uh, the New Deal uh, under Franklin Roosevelt. We see it in post-World War II liberalism. Uh, and I think we see it today. Um, consider progressives push for robust government action uh, to stop uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a necessary function of the government because the well-being of the people uh, depends on it. So I think there's where we see a big uh, similarity. Uh, In terms of uh, differences, I think we uh, see that in the late 19th century, in early 20th century, progressivism crossed party lines. There's lots and lots of uh, progressivism to be found in the Republican Party. And today we live, as we well know, in a very highly uh, highly polarized, uh, very partisan uh, world. Uh, and so the, the upcoming vote uh, on the climate change bill and, and uh, changes to taxes, uh, higher taxes and uh, among uh, for the wealthy and, and for uh, corporations in certain ways. Um, we don't know how the vote's going to turn out, but the, the trend line seems to be that it will be all Democrats uh, voting for it and no Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the case with progressive legislation uh, in the late 19th century and, and early 20th century. When did it become where progressivism's main home was in the Democratic Party, and when did it leave the Republican Party, do you think? That's a great question. And that brings us into the 1920s. So if I may, a few words about the 1920 election will will help us answer this question. Um, Senator Warren G. Harding, Republican of Ohio, wins the Republican nomination. And he campaigns uh, on a promise to restore normalcy uh, to the country. Uh, And if you look at his campaign speeches uh, and his uh, inaugural address, uh, he talks about the, the need to give up uh, reform, 
that the government has been uh, striving to do too much, uh, and it's not been fulfilling its promises. And in, in trying to do too much uh, progressivism, uh, it's, it's, it's threatening basic uh, liberties um, among the American people uh, and uh, for commercial uh, endeavor. Uh, and so here's where we see that turn away from progressivism for the Republican Party. Uh, at the same time, we too see Harding supporting very progressive legislation. He signs the Shepherd Towner Act uh, during his uh, short presidency, which provides federal funding for uh, nurses and, and medical care for, for single mothers and, and uh, clinics to help young mothers know better their baby's health. I mean, this is a very progressive piece of legislation. Uh, and despite campaigning uh, on a platform of, of ending progressivism, uh, he does uh, support it. But we see a trend lined away from that once the Great Depression comes. Uh, and if you look at the, the battle between uh, Franklin Roosevelt and, and Herbert Hoover in 1928, if you look at the speeches of Herbert Hoover, he's warning against expanded government along progressive lines. Um, in the ways Roosevelt is proposing. And uh, as well we know, Hoover loses in 1932. He loses big, but when he goes out on the campaign trail for Alf Landon in 1936, he's issuing even uh, more dire warnings uh, about this trend line of progressivism. So uh, I think we begin to see that shift uh, during Harding and continuing during the 1930s. We should also note that there were lots of Democrats in the 1930s who were, were not progressives, and Roosevelt always had to negotiate the conservative wing uh, of the Democratic Party, which was lodged uh, in the South. Um, so another major change we see is the transformation of the South from a Democratic stronghold to a Republican one, uh, which begins in the mid-60s and, and um, uh, continues for the next several decades so that we see the South today as, as, a, as a Republican stronghold. Let's go back to Wilson for a minute. He really resented the Constitution, and I would assert almost hated the document because he saw it as tying his hands. He could do some great things, you know, if it wasn't for the Constitution. And he wasn't the only one. There was other progressives that they seemed to resent, particularly the the first ten amendments, you know, parts of them, because the protection of individuals like free speech for example. And Wilson, obviously, with the, the Sedition Act, pushed against you know the, the First Amendment of guaranteeing all free speech. But also, uh, t you know, Teddy Roosevelt, too, resented the, the uh, I, I guess today we would call maybe civil rights, but the, those first 10 amendments, because, as you said, he wanted to protect the people in the way he knew best, and sometimes that would mean violating some of those amendments. Is Am I wrong on that, or uh, set me straight if so? Well, I think for Roosevelt and, and Wilson, um, their main problem with uh, the Constitution is the ways in which the Supreme Court was interpreting uh, not just the first 10 amendments, but the 14th Amendment. Uh, and you have a lot of decisions in the late 19th century and going into the early 20th century, uh, that are there are very strict interpretations uh, of the 14th Amendment. Progressives were trying to use the 14th Amendment, especially the Equal Protection Clause, uh, to uh, enable worker rights. And you've got a Supreme Court that's saying, well, freedom of contract is is what's most important here. And and if all workers are equal to move about their jobs. You know, you don't like, you know, working in a meatpacking plant because you're going to cut your finger off and the pay is low and the conditions are miserable. You are free to leave and, and work elsewhere. Uh, and so interpreting the 14th Amendment uh, or other parts of the Constitution, uh, for example, interstate commerce, uh, to pass national laws uh, on, on, on worker safety, they're having difficulty doing that. Can you explain the 14th Amendment a little more? for folks that aren't aware of it? Sure, I think uh, the 14th Amendment is one of the most important 
additions uh, to our, our Constitution. We first have to understand its context um, in the wake of the Civil War. The 14th, 14th Amendment's first purpose is to solve a, a huge problem for the nation as it, it uh, puts itself back together. What is the citizenship status uh, of the freedmen and women, uh, the formerly enslaved people who have been emancipated um, by the 13th Amendment, which goes into effect in 1865. Um, those who were still enslaved um, in, in early 1865 are now supposed to be free, but, but are they citizens? So the 14th Amendment establishes birthright citizenship. If you're born in the United States, you're a citizen of the country and the state uh, in which you are, or you are born, and you can carry that citizenship, of course, then to any state uh, you, uh, you move to. Um, but, it, but it also states that no state, say Wisconsin, Kentucky, uh, can deny someone uh, life, liberty, uh, and uh, uh, due process, uh, or without due process, uh, and that Congress must enforce this. And, and it also establishes uh, an equal protection law, that all the laws of the state as well as the federal government must apply equally um, to, to people. Uh, and that it's Congress's duty to uh, enforce this. So the 14th Amendment makes it possible for the Supreme Court in 1954, just to give one uh, fairly modern example of how profound this amendment is, it gives the Supreme Court the basis with which to overturn racial segregation in schools and therefore as a, as a precedent racial segregation elsewhere uh, to deny um, a minority uh, the education available to the majority is a violation of equal protection because it so stigmatizes the minority by saying you are inferior. It's a violation, therefore, of the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause. A few episodes ago, I was talking with uh, Dr. Carlos Ayer. He's a Reformation historian. And we got to talking about John Calvin and then even uh, St. Augustine before that. And they both had this idea about the depravity of man. And this really influenced the American founding because no one person should be trusted with much power was the thinking. Because no matter how good we think someone might be or how we think we are as individuals, you know, we're still liable to be corrupted. Thus, why we have the Constitution that we have uh, with all the, the limits and the checks and balances. How did Wilson, and I guess Roosevelt too, who argued for a class of experts, people in the government that would have all this power to shape society how they thought was fit, how did they deal with the question of the depravity of man or the corruptibility of man? Well, I think that their answer is, uh, by relying on experts who collect the evidence in a dispassionate manner and examine it scientifically, we can engineer solutions to our problems. And these experts can provide the options, a set of solutions for elected officials to choose from. Um, you know, progressives, uh, you know, this is kind of something we're, we're dancing around, but progressives are uh, about outputs, right? Results. Um, and so if, if you believe that the government must provide a minimum level of, of well-being, uh, so for example, in the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Social Security is introduced. So you think about, okay, how do we get to the point where we provide this part of uh, um, a guarantee, this part of a safety net, old age pensions? Uh, so you rely on the experts to tell you, well, this is how you're going to create a program of, of this uh, scale. Uh, so if you come at it from that angle, if you're thinking about the, the end result, then you're going to go to the Constitution and say, where can we, what do we find here that will enable us to, to, to get what we want? Uh, and, and if you believe that government exists to, go, to, go, to do good for the people, uh, then you have a pretty optimistic view of, of human nature, right? You're believing, okay, once we get there, and if we can find something the Constitution that enables it, once people receive these benefits, they understand how it improves their life, they're going to, they're going to embrace it. Um, they're not going to uh, complain about a tyr tyrannical government that is, that is oppressing them. This is not to say there aren't complaints or criticisms or resentments towards Social Security, but just to sort of encapsulate the, the progressive mindset. Oh, my honey, oh, my honey, better hurry and let me end up. 
When it came to matters of race, the progressives of then had a different outlook than the folks we call progressives today, at least by some accounts. And even within the progressives, there was different views about race. So I guess on one extreme, you might say, you know, President Wilson had the more white supremacist view. The Teutonic race he talked about a lot being superior. uh, And those that were not fit shouldn't even be allowed to vote. And then we're Teddy Roosevelt, I remember being a little more magnanimous. He, he did uh, believe in the superiority of certain cultures, but he thought the lower races could be brought up uh, you know, through education or something. Talk about that, those dynamics, and uh, where they, if you can, trace when they finally left the progressive movement. Well, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that whether we're talking about uh, progressives or socialists, uh, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives uh, in the late 19th century, early uh, late 19th century and early 20th century, the scientific belief in white superiority of the superior superiority of uh, people descended uh, from um, European uh, whites, basically, right, like Caucasians, uh, that is so widespread. I mean, it's just it's believed by people across all political stripes um, worldwide. I mean, African Americans and people of color are pushing back against this because they recognize their innate uh, equality with with other human beings. But it's it's just so widespread in educational systems, in in medicine, uh, in science, in the in the culture, uh, in politics, uh, that you're going to see people who. Uh, are bitter enemies politically, uh, but but who share these beliefs uh, in in white superiority. So Wilson is this energetic progressive when it comes to um, reshaping government to provide this minimum level of well-being. Um, but he has very little interest in in using the powers of government to provide basic established constitutional guarantees for African Americans. I mean, we have in the late 19th century and early 20th century flagrant violation of the Constitution. And I think this is important to keep in mind that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments for millions of African Americans um, were, were widely ignored. I mean, democracy based upon our Constitution was not functioning at this time. And so we talk about like, oh, the progressives are, are messing with the Constitution. Well, everybody was failing the Constitution, right. whatever their politics, because um, black men were denied their constitutional right to vote under the 15th Amendment. And once the, the 19th Amendment goes into effect in 1920, that disfranchisement is applied to, to black women. Uh, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, uh, it's not present. And slavery by another name, particularly through uh, the sharecropping system is is widespread in the United States. So you know, these great Reconstruction amendments uh, that are supposed to eradicate all vestiges of slavery and provide equality for all, regardless of race, that's not being fulfilled uh, in in the United States. And most white Americans are either comfortable with it, are fervently supporting it, or or just they don't care because it doesn't affect them. So you know that's very different than the world we live in today. How did the issue of race manifest in the 1910s? You talked about some African-Americans pushing back. Uh, what did that look like? Well, we have in the 1910s something known as the New Negro Movement, Negro being the word commonly used to uh, describe or identify Americans of African uh, descent. Uh, and the New Negro Movement was, was marked first by uh, a lot of uh, self-help, um, and a, a major feature of it uh, is uh, African-Americans saying, well, we've got to build institutions uh, for ourselves uh, because we live in a, in a hostile country in which we uh, are denied our, our basic rights. Um, another feature of the new Negro movement was to push for full restoration of constitutional rights as, as soon as possible. Um, the Niagara movement, um, which W.E.B. Du Bois um, is a founder of, uh, is, a, is a major part of this. And this leads to the um, establishment of the National um, Association for the Advancement of Colored People, 
colored people being another common term used at the time, the NAACP. Full restoration of the 15th Amendment, um, an end to racial segregation, end to Jim Crow, um, which was enabled by a very strict reading of the 14th Amendment by the Supreme Court saying, this is only about political equality, the Equal Protection Clause, it doesn't apply in the social sphere. So that put a constitutional stamp of, of approval uh, on Jim Crow and racial segregation. So uh, that second feature of the new Negro movement is to uh, end racial uh, segregation. Uh, and I think another feature uh, to note, because this leads in the 1920s, is, is uh, Americans of African descent are saying, look, we, we have a culture. We are um, an advanced people, and uh, we live in a, in a, in a society, in a, world, in, a, in, a, in a time in which we're told that uh, Africans are, are primitive and, and, and Africans who are brought to the United States or, or to the Western Hemisphere uh, and enslaved uh, didn't bring any culture with them, and, and whatever they have, they've learned clumsily from the white superior race. And if you look at the culture of the United States at the time, there are all these racist stereotypes that perpetuate this view. So New Negroes are about um, establishing the, the cultural uh, equality uh, of, of African Americans. Now, the boys famously endorsed Woodrow Wilson for president initially, right? And what was his rationale, considering how much we know about Wilson and his uh, you know, racist attitudes? Yeah, it's it was a gamble for Du Bois to in, endorse uh, Wilson. Um, uh, du Bois certainly knew well Wilson's Southern heritage. More importantly, Du Bois was familiar with Wilson's published scholarship. Uh, we haven't mentioned that that Wilson um, had a PhD and he'd uh, spent his career before turning to politics, uh, working as a college professor, a prolific scholar, uh, and then a college uh, administrator. So uh, Du Bois is familiar with this. Um, and it's interesting that he believes Wilson is someone who can be convinced uh, to stand uh, for for uh, African Americans, but it doesn't work out. Before we move on a little bit time-wise, and I feel like I probably have beat up on Wilson too much here, but what do you think is some of the strong points of the Wilson presidency, his eight years? Well, I think you do see great accomplishments for the progressive agenda. Uh, whether one agrees with it or not, Wilson was a progressive and he said, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and he accomplished a lot of it. Uh, so we have the introduction of the federal income tax through a constitutional amendment. Wilson was, was slow to support women's voting rights, but he did come around. Uh, and so uh, that is uh, established. There's also an amendment to the Constitution to provide for the direct election of, of U.S. senators. This was a longstanding goal of the progressives. Uh, as the Constitution was originally written, state legislatures selected senators. Now, some states had uh, opted to allow people to directly elect their senators, but they weren't required to do so. And, and that created circumstances uh, ripe for corruption, which individuals could buy a Senate seat, uh, essentially, uh, or uh, if they're not outright buying it through bribery or gifts, um, they're lobbying state legislators uh, to, 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 to vote for them, to essentially appoint them as, as a senator. So if progressivism at its core is about bringing power to the people and, and further democratization, you see Wilson uh, achieving that. Uh, and then uh, another high point turns us to foreign affairs. Wilson's reasons for asking Congress to declare uh, war against Germany in, in the spring of 1917. Um, the reasons he provides in that, that message to Congress and, and what he says the war is about, that profoundly shapes American foreign policy from, from that moment forward to, to our own day. Essentially, the United States puts at the centerpiece of its foreign policy a mission to make the world safer democracy. And so I think that's a huge takeaway when we consider what the Rose of, uh, what the Wilson administration did. As I mentioned before, Wilson and many other progressives uh, seem to idolize or look up to the German culture, the German race. But then 
we end up going to war against them. Uh, how did they uh, deal with that? How did they explain that? Well, for, for Wilson, when you look at his, his uh, ideas on race, I mean, his admiration or uh, his uh, interest in, in the Germanic races is really about where the seed, what he believed to be the seeds of democracy originate. And so, you know, he says, yes, we, we see incipient individualism present among the Teutonic race. But it, for Wilson, I mean, Wilson's really an, an Anglophile. I mean, he believes it's the, the Anglo-Saxons that, that really germinate um, what becomes democracy. And, and so these seeds are carried by British settlers um, in, in North America uh, and the, the founding of the colonies and then the revolution and the establishment of the United States. That, uh, for Wilson, is primarily possible because of, uh, of, of the British influence. And so for him, there's really no disconnect to, to say we're going to you know, go against the the warlike germans it's, it's really not a disconnect or something that um, makes him uncomfortable you know you look at wilson's statements um, at the start of the war in europe in in uh, august of 1914 those first several weeks he's asking the american people to be neutral and thought deep we're not going to pick sides but he picks sides i mean he sits down for an interview with the editor of the new york times and said i think it would be great you know if great britain wins this war mm-hmm. you know so so much for being impartial in thought and deed. The president himself makes it clear that he that he's favoring Britain. In World War One, of course, a lot of people enlist, including African-Americans, and there's this great hope, and this seems to happen, this happened in the Civil War, that I remember Frederick Douglass arguing that if African-Americans get involved, you know, this will prove to the whites that they are um, good U.S. citizens. And the same thing happens in World War I. Uh, but when they get back, uh, things don't go so well. Can you talk about that? And I want to hone in on, I, I know you wrote a, a great article, did some research on the race riots that happened in Washington, D.C. I know most people, if they know anything about the return from World War I, it's usually the Chicago riot. But uh, yeah, talk about all that if you don't mind. Sure. So uh, when Wilson asks the American people and the nation to enter the Great War against Germany in order to make the world safer democracy. We need to think about how that sounds to African-Americans who are living in a constitutional democracy that denies them basic rights, voting rights, equal protection of the laws, uh, even protection from enslavement. So for, for people subjected to that, how does a mission to make the world safer democracy sound. Well, overwhelmingly African Americans are, are patriotic and they want their they, they want America to live up to its promise. I mean Du Bois is saying this. He's calling on African Americans. He keeps highly critical of the United States uh, for obvious reasons, uh, given racial discrimination and racial violence. But but Du Bois is saying let's close ranks and contribute to making the world safer democracy because then our country cannot in any legitimate way than deny us fulfillment of democracy here. So there is this expectation among the 370,000 African-American men who serve uh, in in the U.S. military. There's an expectation among the the many more African-Americans who work in defense plants or who have relatives who go into service that, hey, once we win this war and we liberate France um, and, and we defeat authoritarian Germany, and make the world safer democracy in Europe, we're gonna do the same thing here. Um, so you can, we can then understand how the new Negro movement becomes part of this, right? So African-Americans are saying, all right, we've been fighting for our voting rights now, you know, we're gonna to contribute to the war and when we come home, we're gonna see fulfillment of, of that. And it, and it doesn't happen, it, it doesn't happen. There's a, a reassertion of violent white supremacy across the country leading to uh, white mobs attacking African-Americans in Chicago, Washington, D.C., uh, Omaha, uh, Knoxville, and, and, and many other uh, cities. Um, in Washington, D.C., uh, white veterans and, and active duty white servicemen begin the attacks. And you know we commonly use the term race rights to describe what's going on, but I think it's important for us to understand that they weren't riots in the sense that everyone participating 
was equally responsible mm -hmm. for what happened. We have premeditated acts of violence among large and small groups uh, of whites targeting African-Americans and then African-Americans defend themselves. Um, and a lot of the self-defenders are recently re returned, recently returned uh, black veterans. That's true in Chicago and it's true in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, but across the country, these are seen as riots in which African-Americans are responsible. So if you look at a lot of the press coverage, blacks get blamed for the violence inflicted upon them. They get blamed for defending themselves uh, against uh, the violence. But there's widespread celebration in the black press of armed black self-defense against white mobs standing up uh, to them. And this is famously captured in a, in a poem uh, by uh, the black poet Claude McKay. Uh, who was born in, in Jamaica and then uh, came to live in the United States. He wrote this poem, If We Must Die, Let It Not Be Like a Hogs. Um, he talks about uh, African-Americans standing up to the white mobs and fighting uh, to the death if necessary. Um, we can think of this as, as a great expression, a literary expression of the New Negro movement uh, and an early feature of what we know as the Harlem Renaissance. Only all the events I've mentioned happened in 1919. Right. And to bring folks up to speed, there was also economic problems. As I mentioned, there was the, the Sedition Act where people were put into prison, mostly on the left, political left, like people that criticized the war. And so you seem to have this total rejection of Wilson and everything, he, at least a lot of what Wilson stood for. Uh, and then you have the election of uh, Warren Harding. Is that how you see it, that the, the country just rejected Wilson and, and the progressives, or was it more complicated than that? I think at the base level, there's uh, a rejection of, of progressivism. I think the primary reason is that Americans answered Wilson's call to go to war to make the world safer democracy. And, and by the fall of 1920, it was hard to see what the war had, what the U.S. gained from the war. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to make the world safer democracy, Wilson said, we need an international organization, what he called the League of Nations. Um, and, and members, large and small, will defend one another. He believed that if representative governments established and led the League of Nations with the U.S. at the forefront, then there would be less war because the combined protective power of these nations would deter aggressors and would encourage people to undertake uh, peaceful change within their countries to become more representative, to become democratic, small d. Well, the, the U.S. Senate rejects U.S. membership in the League of Nations. The United States doesn't even sign the Versailles Treaty, which Wilson spent months helping to draft uh, in France after the war in, in early 1919. Uh, on top of that, there's the, the, the economic problems you mentioned, a wave of strikes in, in 1919. Um, especially in the summer of 1919, you have millions of workers who are on strike, and sometimes these strikes uh, get, get violent. You have um, the outbreaks of of anti-black collective violence, white mobs attacking blacks and blacks fighting back. And by the fall of 1920, a lot of Americans are asking, what's going on? It seems like the country is is, is, is falling apart uh, and, and we need to get back to some, well, as Harding put it, normalcy. So I think those events are, are, are driving a lot of the rejection of, of Wilson and progressivism, but it doesn't mean progressivism is dead. As I mentioned earlier, you even have Harding supporting the Shepherd Towner Act. Uh, and uh, progressivism uh, makes a big comeback uh, during the 30s uh, under the four-term presidency of Franklin Roosevelt. When you look at list of like worst presidents of all time, ultimately you'll see Harding at the very least in the top 10, uh, sometimes number one. Do you think that's fair? No, I don't. Okay. Um, I, I have a problem with worst and best presidents to begin with, but, sure. but that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I mean, to focus directly on your question, I think Harding um, got a, gets a bum rap. I mean, first of all, we have to keep in mind he was only in office from March of 1921 until his death in August of 1923. So he's only president for, for less than two and a half years. Um, you know, so how much bad can 
one president do in, in you know, that short of time? Apparently a lot, according to those guys who make the list. Yeah, a lot, right? And I think the reason he makes that list is because there were a lot of scandals in that short period. And, um, I mean, let's be, let's be um, um, accurate here. Harding made horrendous choices in, in the people he brought into his administration. I mean, he appointed a man he hardly knew and, and didn't vet named Charles Forbes to lead the, the Veterans Bureau. Um, you know, the forerunner of the of the the VA, and and this guy uses the office to enrich himself. Um, there's the Teapot Dome scandal, in which the Secretary of the Interior uh, is selling off uh, petroleum reserve for for the for the Navy. Uh, there are other scandals as well. Now, uh, Harding himself was not a part of the scandals, and and unlike uh, some of his successors, he didn't get caught up in conspiracies to uh, cover them up. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, I think we have to understand that yes, those scandals occurred and it shows poor leadership, uh, on, on Harding's part. Uh, but what did he then do as president? This is what gets overlooked. Um, he modernized the, um, budget budgeting process for the American government, uh, for the U S government. Uh, there was really no single budget at this time. All departments had their individual budgets and they took them to the various committees of Congress and then appropriations were made or not made. But it was, it was hard really to track how much money that the, the government was spending. And if you can't keep track of your basic expenditures or have a single budget, I mean, then how can you manage your financial affairs? So he created um, the Bureau of the Budget, which is the forerunner of the modern day OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. Um, which is an essential part of the executive branch and uh, of White House functioning uh, today. He spoke out against lynching um, in, in ways no previous president had done. Uh, and so we see Harding saying this is un-American uh, and, and, and it needs uh, to, to stop. He, he spoke out in favor of, of federal anti-lynching legislation, which wasn't able to get through Congress because of opposition of, of, of Southern uh, Democrats. Um, he also... Um, lowered taxes. Taxes, especially the higher brackets, had reached astronomical levels during the war. And Harding started the process of, of lowering those taxes, which his uh, successor, Calvin Coolidge, who of course takes over when Harding dies and then is elected in 1924. So we see steady tax reductions um, from uh, Hoover through Coolidge and even extending into, um, uh, sorry, uh, Harding to Coolidge uh, and even into the Hoover administration. So I don't think he deserves to be on that that list. It's it's not a fair assessment. Right. When they do trash Harding, and you sometimes even see it in modern movies, little lines and, and things, little digs at him, they often mention his love for women, whiskey, and, and gambling. And the way they make it is like, you know, he was turning the White House into a speakeasy. Of course, I, I know most of that's probably not true, but where did these rumors start? Do you know? Well, he liked he liked late night card games uh, with his friends, and, and alcohol was uh, enjoyed. And he he was uh, a philanderer um, uh, before he was elected president, and and while he was president. I mean, you know, this raises an interesting issue um, that we we see today. Like, uh, to to what extent does a president's personal behavior how how should that affect individual as well as collective assessments? Uh, of of their performance, so you know we we live um, in an era now in which the personal lives of presidents, as well as many other elected leaders, um, are, are are under constant scrutiny. Choices about what color suits to wear or an errant comment can can you know gain traction in our mass media and our um, in, in the social media realm and and uh, create problems for presidents they, they don't necessarily anticipate. They don't use a ladle or pot, but they cook a rhythm that's hot. When they're done, believe it or not, it's jazz pie. So Harding dies. One of my favorite stories about this is that Calvin Coolidge, the vice president, was like visiting his parents, and they had no telephone. And somebody had to come tell him in the middle of the night that he was president and uh his dad being a judge swore him in and then they all went back to bed (laughs) i mean that 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 seems so early 19th century and and yet coolidge was the first president to make uh widespread use of radio uh uh, to to campaign and you know 1924 um 
um, you know, there were Coolidge trucks that, that would go around broadcasting recordings of, of, of speeches he had made. So, you know, even at the time, you know, we're, we're thinking of like, wow, he's assuming that the power is being transferred and, uh, you know, by, um, I don't even think there was electricity in that home. So they, they had a, you know, kerosene lamp or something like that to, to do it. Um, yet radio exists and, and, and as President Coolidge makes extensive use of it. Well, one guy we haven't mentioned yet, but is he's kind of credited for the economic miracle, if you want to call it, of the 1920s is uh, Andrew Mellon. Uh, who served under Harding and Coolidge. Can you talk about him some? Sure. So I mentioned those tax cuts that are carried out by Harding and Coolidge. That That's a- Andrew Mellon, um, uh, who, who comes to that uh, position, Secretary of Treasury, as, a, as a, um, an immensely uh, wealthy uh, individual. Um, and and, and it's, he's really pushing these tax cuts and, the, and they're following through on him. So that's where we, we, we see his influence. And it's interesting to note that, that Mellon, who you know, is against government actions to um, restore the economy or, uh, as he sees it, interfere in the workings of the economy. When the, when the Great Depression comes, they have this massive loss of uh, value uh, of stocks, and, and much of it was um, grossly inflated anyway, so the bubble bursts. But, but this spreads because there are collapses uh, of banks and, you know, there's no federal guarantee of deposits. So millions of Americans are losing their life savings and, and unemployment is rising. You know, there's clearly a, 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 an economic train wreck barreling uh, uh, down the tracks. And, and, and Mellon tells Hoover, just let it happen. Liquidate everything. Liquidate agriculture. Liquidate uh, manufacturing. Just let, let it all go down and see what's left and, and we'll, we'll rebuild from there. And, and you know, Hoover... <laughs> Um, who has a very distinctive conservative vision and in, 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 a, in, a, in a very articulate, detailed view of what is appropriate for the government to do. He's horrified by this. He's like, well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> the, the, the country will go down if we just do nothing. You know, we talked to, we've been talking about like the bum rap that, that Harding gets. I think Hoover gets a bum rap because people have, have this vision of him as a do-nothing president who just lets the Great Depression rage and, and does nothing. And uh, that's not true. Hoover undertakes a lot of actions. Um, they're just not effective enough. And when Roosevelt comes in, he builds on the foundation that Hoover provided and just adds uh, more direct government uh, action, pumps more money into it. Um, but a lot of the early recovery or, or mitigation of the Great Depression that occurs during Roosevelt's first term is made possible by building off the actions Hoover undertook during his four-year presidency. The, back to Calvin Coolidge, if I recall, the thing, the incident that put him on the national scene before he became vice president was that he was governor. Uh, was it Massachusetts, right? Yes. Yeah. And there was a an incident that went down in Boston regarding the policeman and his actions would end up making him a hero to a lot of folks uh, to talk about that. So the, the Boston police were trying to unionize and I, I, I think they were trying to join the, the AFL, but I'm, I'm not sure, but definitely they were trying to, to unionize. And, um, you know, there's pushback uh, against this uh, by the, the city of Boston, but, but also the state of Massachusetts then, led, as you noted, um, by Governor Coolidge. So the police went out on strike. This was one of the big strikes of, of 1919. And it got national attention because you know, this is a major police department, um, uh, you know, a big American city. What, what's going to happen? And so you have some pretty exaggerated, hyperbolic press coverage, like, you know, it's being reported across the country that criminal gangs are running amok in Boston. And it really didn't happen. But but um, Har- uh, Coolidge put down the strike, and he famously said, "There, you know, you, no one has the right to strike against public safety." Um, and you know, Coolidge is not remembered as a loquacious guy, or even um, you know, someone with memorable phrases. But that really helped, you know, bring him to national attention because people are like, yeah, no one has the right to strike against uh, public public safety. The, the 1920s uh, are, are often remembered, as I mentioned, the boom uh, economically. And we've, you've talked about Mellon having, obviously, a finger in that. But it was more than just wealth uh, being more available. Uh, talk about how 
certain things that had never been available to working class people or even poor people were now available. I think it's been said by a couple different generations that people in the 1920s were living better than kings did 100 years before. Well, the 1920s really see the full emergence uh, of a mass consumer culture. And I mean, it's not new to the 1920s, but, but we really do see these trends uh, in production, distribution, and branding um, coming out. Uh, and, and radio makes that possible. So, you know, people are listening to the same shows across the country. And, and these shows are being sponsored by, um, for example, Pepsodent toothpaste. So, you know, the, the manufacturer of Pepsodent is relying on advertising firms to, to put this out there as the toothpaste. And whether people are living uh, in, a, in a New York tenement uh, or, or, or a penthouse in uh, another city or in a farm, if they have a radio, you know, they can hear about and learn about and desire the same consumer products. Um, and so uh, goods become more affordable um, and, and wages do rise. We should keep in mind that, that poverty is persistent throughout the 1920s. And then there are millions of Americans who are living without electricity, living without running water. They don't have a radio, but more and more Americans do have radios. Uh, this is also a decade of electrification. So by the end of the, the decade, two thirds of households are electrified. So that opens up the door to all of these uh, mass produced appliances, not just the radios, but, but refrigerators, um, vacuum cleaners. Uh, and so it becomes possible to have um, more leisure time uh, and and to um, uh, have the benefits uh, of, uh, of of modern living. I mean, we take for granted having refrigerators today, uh, but imagine what that would be like if you were if you didn't have refrigeration uh, or electricity, and then it comes into your home. Um, automobiles, uh, a whole other feature, and, and uh, this also um, brings in consumer credit. So you know, most people don't have. Uh, the cash to buy an automobile. I mean, spending habits prior to the 1920s, uh, the pattern was you didn't buy something until you had the money to do it. Uh, but but um, extension of credit at stores uh, or through car dealerships, that becomes more common. Banks loaning money uh, to people to, to uh, buy homes and, and the home ownership rises. I mean, Banks had made loans to people before the 1920s, but but, but it becomes more common. So the, the, all of these things come together to sort of create the modern consumer culture and, and the reliance on consumer spending to drive economic growth that is so much a part of our lives today. The expenses of the government reach everybody. Taxes take from everyone a part of his earnings and force everyone to work for a certain part of his time for the government. Especially modern progressives often blame Coolidge and maybe even Mellon, if they know who he is, for the Great Depression. So how much do you think of that is legitimate? And how much do you think it was just, you know, the bubble had to burst at some point? Or what's your, your thought? What's the data say? Well, the data says, the historical evidence says no one individual even someone as powerful as the American president or the secretary of treasury was responsible for uh, the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression was an overdetermined event, meaning there were more than enough causes for it, and they coalesced at a certain moment uh, to bring um, a severe and persistent uh, economic situation. Uh, we need to keep in mind that the, the Great Depression was not an American event it was a global event, and the Great Depression occurs in, in Japan, in Germany, in, in Great Britain. It's occurring across the industrialized world. And, and one of the reasons the Great Depression is persistent is because the industrialized nations undertake financial and, and tariff policies that protect their own economies and provide some short-term and limited benefit, but uh, on the aggregate, uh, slow recovery. Uh, because you, you don't have a restoration of, of the global economy. Um, agriculture was a, uh, was persistently lagging behind other industries in the United States. And in the 1920s, 25% of Americans were employed in one way or another uh, through, through agriculture. 
uh, far more farmers than there are now. Uh, and prices were, were low. There was overproduction. That contributes to the Great Depression. Yeah, there is irrational exuberance on the, on the stock market, but, but um, only about 2.5% of Americans own stock. Um, in 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 the nineteen uh, late nineteen twenties, the problem is that when when banks made loans to speculators who couldn't pay back those loans, um, and and that took down the banks because you don't have the regulations that are put in place later to prevent banks from from making such risky loans if they're using de- uh, consumer deposits, um, that wipes them out. There's no federal deposit uh, insurance. Uh, to to um, compensate someone whose whose bank collapses, so these things all all knit together, and you know there are individuals who have some responsibility. Hoover, in his memoir, for example, highly criticizes Coolidge for not speaking out, not using the bully pulpit of the presidency to caution uh, that 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 people are are um, engaging in risky behavior on the on, on the stock market. Um, so it's interesting to note that that Hoover criticizes Coolidge for not speaking out, but let's just say Coolidge had. Would that have slowed things down and prevented the Great Depression? Almost certainly not. Yeah, I know that Coolidge did speak out against the, I can't remember what they call it, where a bank loans individual money to invest in the stock market. Uh, yeah, and I, I can't remember, well, so there's two things going on, like um, there's there's margin buying where people are, only using a little bit of their their own money and they're borrowing money to, to buy stocks on margin and and they're not putting up collateral that becomes the problem and, and banks are willing to make these loans because they do so at high interest rates and, and the borrower borrowers while the stock market is rising are willing to take on those high interest rates uh, because they expect to be so well compensated for selling these stocks at a higher value that they can cover the interest rate. Uh, this is known as call money, the, these types of loans. So the banks could call them in uh, at any point. So when the panic begins, they begin to call in the loans and, and those investors just don't have uh, any way to, to pay it back. And that creates that cascade. Oh, the market's not so good today. Your stocks look kind of sick. In fact, they all drop down a point each time the tickers tick. We'll have to have more margin now, there isn't any doubt. So you better dash with a load of cash or we'll have to sell you out. The 1920s is known now as the Jazz Age, or they used to call it the Roaring Twenties. And, of course, the operative word being jazz, jazz music being African-American in, in origin, you see blacks in a more respectable, um, I think, spotlight. Uh, they have this occurrence of uh, even wealthy whites with a, doing what they call slumming. They would go, especially if they lived in New York City, they would go to Harlem, to the Cotton Club and these other places to see you know, jazz bands play. And there was this intermixing. Talk about that, uh, if you can. What, what are some of the things that you think were positive about that in the 1920s? Well, jazz... And this popularity is part of what we know as the Harlem Renaissance. And I mentioned earlier that that African Americans are are pushing back hard against racist stereotypes. And uh, the Harlem Renaissance um, is is a culmination of those efforts. Uh, it's not just music; it's it's poetry. Uh, it's it's scholarship uh, in the fields of history and anthropology and, and sociology. It's drama. Uh, it's it's uh, fiction uh, and uh, it's it's uh, cultural um, as well in terms of events that are that are, are taking place in in um, neighborhoods like 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 Harlem and so one of the basic purposes of the Harlem Renaissance is is to show that Americans of African descent have a have a vibrant uh, and exciting uh, culture that that culture in all its features is, is equal to um, uh, European American uh, culture. Um, so jazz is one way uh, uh, to do that. Um, it's also a way to express pride in one's race. You know, we think of um, you know the Black is Beautiful uh, movement of the 1960s, which is part of Black Power. But I, I think you can make you know, the case that Black is Beautiful is a is a is a major part of the the Harlem Renaissance. Um, uh, and it, it builds on the new Negro movement. I mean, one of the key texts of the Harlem Renaissance is, is even entitled 
The New Negro, an interpretation edited by uh, a Howard University professor, Elaine Locke. And, and, you know, this, you look at this book and it's, it's really amazing because it's got art, uh, it's got uh, poems, it's got sociological essays, historical essays, um, short stories, uh, really this um, multifaceted cultural uh, artifact. So, you know, what we call the jazz age is uh, much more uh, than, than jazz. Oh, fare thee well to Harlem. Fare thee well to nightlife. Going back where I can lead the right life. Fare thee well to Harlem. If you want to learn more about today's topic, Dr. Krugler has written a book called 1919, The Year of Racial Violence, which you can find at your favorite bookshops. And if you're still in a jazz mood, you may give In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, 274 a listen, where we talk about the life and career of pianist, singer, and composer Yuna Carlisle. If it's American history you crave, episode 269, we discuss the events leading up to the colonists declaring their independence from Mother England. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.